sealed up and sealed. The advantage of papyrus was it was available. It was inexpensive, but it wasn't durable. But because this letter uh, bears witness to the enduring good news of Jesus Christ, people uh, made copies, manuscripts. Now, it wasn't long before they shifted from papyrus to, to parchment, which was made out of hide. And then by the turn of the century, they started to shift from scrolls to what we would recognize as something that looks like a book. They figured out how to bind the pages of these hides into the leaves of what was called a codex. And if any of you have ever been to the British Library in London, you've seen one of the most famous examples there is, the Codex Sinaiticus. It was from the mid-fourth century. It's one of the two oldest copies of the complete New Testament. And I had a chance to see it once. And granted, I went to seminary, a little bit of a theology nerd, but it was, it was like stunning to see this object in person. So if you ever have a chance to go to London, make sure you go to the British Library. Well, in the Middle Ages, it was monks who copied these Bibles by hand on development. So they copied the Gospels, this letter, they copied, copied the, uh, the Psalms, the Prophets, the Torah. Monks working in what were called scriptoriums, with stone walls, working at little wooden desks. And there's part of me that can kind of romanticize that a little. They got to spend a day with books in a quiet room. That sounds pretty good. But at times, those scriptorium could be poorly lit. At times, it could get drafty and cold. Sometimes the days got pretty long, and monks got a little bit bored, and they got a little bit cranky, and if we're going to be honest, they got a little bit randy. And so they would make notes in the margins of these manuscripts that they were working on, which is sort of surprising to me. Like, did they think nobody was going to notice or maybe they were just grouchy enough like they no longer cared, whatever. Well, we have some of these notes. They're called marginalia uh, that are in some of the, the manuscripts that are still extant. So, for example, one monk long ago wrote, new parchment, bad ink, I say no more. I don't know, it's kind of a passive-aggressive monk, I suspect. One monk wrote, just, I am very cold. Another wrote, thank God. It will soon be dark. One wrote, uh, now I've written the whole thing. For Christ's sake, give me a drink. <laughs> Another monk was a little more poetic. As the harbor is welcoming to the sailor, so is the last line to the scribe. He was glad to be done. Here's one. This comes from the ninth century. And this was actually, Samuel Barber wrote a song cycle called the Hermit Songs. That I heard performed once. And there was this little bit of uh, marginalia that was one of, the, uh, one of the pieces in the song cycle. It's a little racy for young ears. Uh, a monk wrote, I do not know with whom Aiden will sleep, but I do know that fair Aiden will not sleep alone. Ooh, a little monastic gossip there. And one last, a monk wrote, This is sad, O little book. A day will come in truth when someone over your page will say, The hand that wrote it is no more. Of course, this is the Middle Ages, so this is also the era when monks were illuminating uh, manuscripts. They were painting uh, pictures, elaborate pictures, beautiful pictures that would illustrate the stories primarily of the Gospels. These were pictures that were often gilded with gold. And uh, again, if you're ever in Dublin, if you go to the Trinity College Library, you'll see the most famous example there is, the Book of Kells. Again, stunning to see in person. Still, monks got a little bored. They got a little cranky. They got a little randy. 
And so they would doodle in the margins. They would draw pictures in the margins to accompany these more holy and sacred illuminations they were creating. And so you'd get some surprising and some unusual figures in these illuminated manuscripts. You would get walking fish. You would get cats playing the bagpipes. You would get people shot in the bum with arrows. You would get monkeys, monkeys doing what monkeys do, which was pooping on everything. And you would get, and this apparently was a very common motif, you would get knights jousting with snails. And no one has any idea why snails. And then there were assorted body parts, and I'm mostly going to leave that to your imagination, except to say I, I saw one small picture, one small illumination. Uh, I presume it was the monk, the monk who had dropped trowel and was mooning the reader. <laughs> so you're reading the Holy Scriptures, and all of a sudden you turn the page, and you got this guy's bum staring you right in the face. So on the one hand, uh, we can be grateful for the tedious labors of these scribes and monks by which the scriptures have come to us. On the other, we can also see what happens when, when the word, the word of God, becomes merely words on a page. You can start to get bored and cranky and a little distracted. And so as we finish reading this letter from uh, Paul to the Philippians, it's important to remember, first of all, that Paul wrote this letter to a community. He wrote it to friends who were trying to figure out how to be faithful to the way of Jesus. Well, since Gutenberg introduced the movable type printing press uh, to Europe, and that was in the year 1439, lots of copies of the Bible available. Gutenberg made it much easier for people to read the Bible on their own, to read the Bible in their own language. In many ways, Gutenberg made the Protestant Reformation possible. He made the uh, Radical Reformation, from which Anabaptism comes, possible. He also made it possible to read the Bible alone, to read it in isolation. And certainly there's value in that kind of personal study of the Scriptures. It's what I do, what I do most days sitting back in my office. But there's always this danger that the word becomes merely words on a page, becomes merely a subject to be studied or information to be learned. And like the monks, it's easy then to get bored, to get distracted, and that's how Bibles end up unread on bookshelves and stuffed into motel drawers. Paul wrote this letter to a community of friends. And then second, he wrote this letter, and it was meant to be read out loud. Now, of course, they kind of had to read it out loud because they only had one copy, and most of the people at that time would have been illiterate. But there's something that happens when printed words are spoken. Because when printed words are spoken, now you have a reader and you have listeners. You have a relationship, a community. And that means there can be dialogue, and there can be disagreement, and there can be discovery. And that's when the words on the page start to come to life. That's when the words on the page can start to become the word, the word of God that speaks to us still. And that's the hope. That's the promise of the whole biblical story, right? I mean, in the beginning, God speaks creation into being. God doesn't write a work order and sort of hand it off to the heavenly corps of engineers. God said, let there be light. And in the Gospels, the story of Jesus, we're told the word became flesh and lived among us. Jesus spoke words of healing and forgiveness and mercy, of faith and hope and love. 
Interestingly, he didn't leave anything in writing. People wrote about him, but he didn't leave anything in writing. Instead, the word became flesh. And by the power of the Spirit, lives among us still. God still speaks creative, challenging, redemptive words. And if we listen with open hearts and open minds and open souls, we can hear words of grace and wisdom and loving kindness and peace. The word became flesh. And it's meant to be embodied still. So all these years later, as we're reading this letter to the Philippians, more than, more than merely studying the theology or, or, or sort of extracting out principles or even identifying personal applications, although all that is fine and good, this letter and these scriptures are meant to be enacted, lived out, embodied, performed. Now, here's what I mean. N.T. Wright, who's a, a, a well-known New Testament scholar, suggests a, a thought experiment. N.T. Wright asks us to imagine that a previously unknown play by William Shakespeare has been found. Well, that'd be a huge discovery, right? There'd be a lot of energy. There'd be a lot of excitement. But it turns out only four acts of a five-act play have been recovered. Part of it's missing. Well, what are you going to do? Still a pretty important discovery. There's a lot to be learned about Shakespeare from these four acts. You could just give it to scholars and let them study it draw from it, extract from it, write about it. Or, second, you could commission someone to write the fifth act, although I'm not sure what playwright would be the equal of William Shakespeare. N.T. Wright suggests another possibility. He suggests that you could give the key parts to highly trained, sensitive, and experienced Shakespearean actors who would immerse themselves in the first four acts and in the language and culture of Shakespeare in his time and who would then be told to work out a fifth act for themselves? The fifth act has to follow. It has to be continuous with the story arc, with the trajectory of the first four acts. But the actors are invited to enter into the play, to work out a fifth act for themselves, and to perform it. Well, it's not hard to imagine the Bible as a five-act play, is it? I mean, act one is creation. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. The second act is, is the fall. It's the story of humans failing each other and fouling the earth. The third act is, is Israel, God calling a people to partner with God in the work of redeeming creation. And the fourth act is Jesus, Jesus who widens out the circle, Jesus who calls us all to be part of God's beloved community. And then the fifth act, the fifth act begins in Acts, doesn't it? As the gospel, the good news of the resurrection of Jesus ripples out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to Philippi to the ends of the earth. In a revelation, we get a glimpse of how the whole thing ends. But in between, well, that's the part of Act 5. That's the part of the story that we find ourselves in still. And like that troop of actors, we're called as followers of Jesus to immerse, to immerse ourselves in this in those first four acts to understand what's happened so far, to listen to the Bible, to learn the stories together, and then to work out a fifth act and perform it here and now. Well, here and now in Portland, 2021, we're on the trailing edge of a pandemic. At least we think we're on the trailing edge of a pandemic. 
we're re-engaging with each other in the world around us, and that includes celebration and grief, and, and these days, frankly, a lot of uncertainty. We're figuring out what the new normal is going to look like. So in the days and the months and the years ahead, how, how are we going to perform the scriptures? Well, we've been reading Philippians because in Philippi, they were working out what it means to believe and trust and follow Jesus. So as we come uh, to the end of reading this letter, uh, I want to think back for just a moment to what we've heard from this ancient letter. The first week, Paul, we heard Paul call us to remember joy. Joy that comes when we link our lives to God's will on earth as in heaven. Joy that comes when we connect our lives to God's work of mercy and justice and healing and peace. The second week, we heard Paul's call to be clear about where our loyalties lie. He wrote, live a life that's worthy of a citizen of the kingdom and of the gospel of Christ. There are a lot of competing claims made on our allegiance. Paul calls us to hold fast to the promise of the kingdom of God, to hold fast to the hope of the beloved community. The third week, Paul reminded us that what we do is, is largely determined by who we are and by whose we are. And so he wrote, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. And he wrote of humility. To be humble is to be fertile ground. That's how the seeds of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and steadfastness become the fruits of the Spirit in our lives and in our community. The fourth week, we heard Paul call us to shine like the stars in the world. And Stephen Obeldeshman preached that day, you might remember. He drew out the contrast between light and shadow. And he spoke about God's promise to be with us in the shadowlands, which is where we often can see life most clearly. The fifth week, Randy Lanford was our preacher, and he challenged us not to just know about Christ, but to know Christ. Not just to study the theology of Christ or even understand the ethics of Christ, but to believe, to trust, to be filled, to be fueled by the very spirit that was in Christ Jesus. And then last week, Diane Hoagie lifted up the habits of the heart. We heard them earlier. Whatever's true and honorable and just and pure and pleasing and commendable, think about those things because those are the habits by which we might truly love God and love our neighbors and even love ourselves. So we read this letter of Paul because we trust that, it, that more than just words on a page, it is the word of God. The word of God that speaks to us still. The word that calls us to embody, that calls us to perform what God means to do in and through and among us. I want to show you something. Uh, in Amsterdam, there's a Mennonite church, a single kirk, and it's housed in an older traditional building. And so uh, in the front, of the, uh, the front of the sanctuary, there's an elevated pulpit. Like this pulpit's raised a little, but it's not an elevated pulpit with that soundboard above it. It's one of my professional dreams to preach from a pulpit like that someday. In the front of the pulpit in that church, there's a Bible, which is pretty common, pulpit Bible in most churches. But the Bible there is not flat, it's not still, it's not two-dimensional. Uh, here's what it looks like. Can you see it? Lynn Rush, by the way, took these pictures. Maybe show the next one there, JJ. And then there's one more. Maybe cycle through those pictures one more time. It's as if the wind riffled the pages and brought them to life and then 
blew them out into the world. Thanks, JJ. See, that's what I hope happens whenever we read these words on the page. That the Spirit, the wind of God, riffles through us. That the Spirit brings to life faith and hope and love in us. And then sends us out into the world to perform the gospel. Maybe so. Amen.